Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation, Volume 2. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm a longtime Canadian political scientist living and teaching and working here in Japan for many years, and also the recently launched in the last two years CEO and Chief Diversity Officer of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Enjoy is a Japan-based global-facing business. We work in English, Japanese, and French, and we're committed to bringing the research policy and evidence-based diversity, equity, and innovation training and education to leaders and corporations on the importance of all the different facets of what we mean by building out intersectional diversity, about thinking about accessibility and disability, but from an accessibility perspective, about holistic corporate policy ecosystems and what that looks like in terms of empowering individual employees. And of course, innovation, but not innovation just for its sake. Innovation that supports the holistic holistic well-being of democratic equality, of mental health, and that powers our people systems for personal and collective good. So the live stream is aiming to shine a spotlight on the diversity of the Enjoy Diversity and Innovation Thought Partner Network, all of these individuals, professionals working in Japan and across APAC, and who are making really individual efforts to bring their inclusive, diversity positive, supportive of gender equality, and championing women's leadership into the world in their own industries, their own professional ways, and through their own example. So one of the ways that this live stream is attempting to accomplish that is through this practice of thought partnering out loud. So thought partnering is really just a simple practice. It's this idea where two people as individuals get together and we share our expertise, our worldviews, our lived realities, and we share about our individual, individual diversities. We learn from each other real time. And we meet in solidarity as equals, as individuals, throwing out the meishi, the business cards, the hierarchy, the age generation gaps, the status gaps, the different language communities, whatever it is, just meet and thought partner out loud and learn together in solidarity, regardless of hierarchies that we think that constantly get channeled through our society and through our socialization, unfortunately. So we're trying to disrupt that very actively by bringing a different performative practice of thought partnering out loud into the world through this live stream. So with this live stream format, each week I invite and feature one of the Enjoy Diversity and Innovation thought partners. And this collaborator uh, joins me and shares about their work, about their individual pursuits, their passions, their challenges, um, what enriches their perspectives, and how we can learn about how diversity really rocks innovation. Diversity, of course, is, you know, a driver of innovation when it's coupled with equality. And it makes for me as a political scientist and longtime, you know, political, critical democratic theorist, I believe that it really makes the project of democratic self-government together um, worth pursuing in our homes, our workplaces, our communities, our countries, and through our transnational social justice and global sustainability network. So with that in mind, I would love to extend a huge welcome to Shu Matsuo Post for joining us as today's guest on Diversity Rocks Innovation. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for such a warm <laughs> welcome and the introduction. I'm glad Thank to be you. here today. Thank you for joining us. And I'm so excited to share, you know, so much about what you have been doing in Japan and also elsewhere and just your international efforts to really bring a different lens to the way that you know empowered masculinity and positive masculinity can really just be a game changer for equality and diversity and equity and for innovation, frankly, within the family and even within the family registry in Japan. So there's so many things we're gonna dive into today. Before that, maybe I could just ask you to share what you think to be 
sort of the core pieces of what you would like people to understand about yourself and your identities and uh, what you've been up to lately. Yeah. Um, again, thanks for that intro. And I'm so excited to be here, being part of this uh, amazing, uh, wonderful series. Um, so my, I'd say my area of expertise is gender equality, focusing on positive masculinity, like you mentioned. And, you know, some of the audience members, members might be wondering why a man is talking about feminism and gender equality. Isn't that a women's issue? Well, well, here's, you know, here's my, here's my story. So I'm a Japanese national who has spent time in Japan, the U S and Hong Kong, and I'm also a husband, um, and a new father. Um, and I consider myself a feminist, um, and a feminism advocate, you know, I, um, that's my like personal background. Um, and I recently published a book where yes. you, you wrote the lovely, um, uh, such a, <laughs> such a wonderful cameras. forward to, and well, that was my uh, pleasure. I was so excited to read your book that I just, yeah, I wanted to do everything I could <laughs> to amplify it. Yeah, and I'm excited that uh, to be uh, your thought partner of Enjoy DNI and uh, you know talk more about the um, the positive masculinity and um, feminism from a male perspective, especially as a Japanese man. Well, and, and I was so excited. Sorry, Dad, I thought you were wrapping your sentence. I was so excited to meet you because I had been working with another thought partner in Canada, in Vancouver. Uh, Jake Stika, who I also introduced uh, to you, and I'm lovely to see that flourish between the two of you, but he's very active uh, with an organization called Next Gen Men that are really taking, you know, moving the dial on men's leadership for positive masculinity as well. And so I had this partner, this hot partner in Canada, but I hadn't found a Japanese national man who was a thought partner and a change agent on these issues. So then when I when I learned that you were speaking for her story um, that was put out, uh, I guess, uh, six or eight. Oh, my gosh, that's a long time now. Quite a, quite a few months ago, I guess, last year. Um, and that you and your spouse, uh, life partner, were going to be talking about your journey of changing your last name. I just I was I was over the moon. And so that became, of course, a very first entry point for our conversations on a topic that I've been passionate about for 20, oh gosh, too many years, from the beginning of my personal experience confronting this issue in Canada, and then, you know, figuring, finding out that it was an issue in Japan, and then coming back and I, I, I did my master's in law on this topic because I wanted to know, what is the gap, you know, around how couples choose their last name? And what is the legal gap? And your book, of course, you document so much more than just this legal issue. And, and I want to get into that first. So I'm going to bracket the sort of legal side of what I had been looking at. But that's where I've just found it so wonderful to find not only a Japanese national man who was engaging and leading on this topic, but you went to all this personal like challenge to like David and Goliath go up against the Japanese family registry to assert your individuality and your right to freedom and to self-name. And I was just, that's phenomenally inspiring. So for one, I'm just going to put that out there that phenomenally inspiring. So maybe we can back up a couple, a couple of steps and just tell us about your journey and how you came to, I guess, maybe even delve into your interest in feminism and become on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so the thing is, I don't have a, you know, I, I talked about like, well, my expertise is, you know, positive masculinity and whatnot, but I don't have a PhD like you do okay. in, <laughs> in gender studies <laughs> or masculinity or even a 
degree in gender studies, but I do have an MBA and a unique story. Um, as you yes. mentioned, I,、um, I took my wife's name as a Japanese national. And my partner is American, and we got married in the US. We actually met in Hong Kong, but、uh, we got married in the US. And then after our wedding, we moved to Japan. So when we got engaged, we decided to combine our last names to Matsuo Post. So Matsuo was my name, and Post was her,、um, her name. And the yeah, reason. It's combined. Yeah, combined. So it's、okay. so、like, why, why did you say you took her name? So I'll, I'll get there in a second. <laughs> Okay. Um, so, we wanted to keep our identity、uh, because、yeah. that was important to us, right? Like, when you, like, last name, you, you,、um, you have so much identity, you attach your identity to your name. So, you know,、yeah. we both acknowledged that that was an important thing. And while having,、uh, we wanted to keep a sense of unity as well because we wanted to have children in the future and we wanted them to have the same last name. So, that was our choice. And, you know, I think other married couples might have. Um, other thoughts.、Um, that's totally fine, but that was our choice.、Mm -hmm. And the day after we got married, we changed our last name at a city hall in San Diego where we got married. And the process was very simple and easy. It probably took less than 10 minutes to officially change our last name. So I was like, okay, that was pretty cool. And you know, after our honeymoon, we actually moved back to Japan. And you know, I decided to change my name as a Japanese national. So I wanted to go through the same process. And I thought, to be honest, I thought it was going to be simple and easy like it was in the US. But boy, can, I was very wrong.、So. Can, I, can I ask、yeah. one question? When you、yeah. went, so you're in the United States as a,、yeah. are, you a are you a permanent resident? Are you a、no. visitor? So, so every time I go back, I just, I'm a, I'm a tourist basically. So, so、um, you didn't have to change your name legally with the United States government side, just, just, just she did because she was a national. In the United States, is that correct? Yeah. So on the marriage certificate, I am officially Matsuo Post. My last name. Oh, you name put is, it on the marriage certificate?、Okay. Yeah, marriage certificate as well. But my, I do have some um, identification um, cards and stuff in the US, and I haven't changed those yet.、Um, they're all Matsuos. Like I have a driver's license in California,、um, right. you know, other credit cards and stuff. I haven't changed those yet. I imagine if you show the marriage certificate, though, they just. More fit forward because that's fairly standard. Yeah, I、practice. think so. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And then you get、yeah. back to Japan. <laughs> yeah, I got back to Japan. And, and how、uh, many hundred steps and hoops、oh、did you have、gosh. to jump through administratively? <laughs> Very many. And to be honest, I was like, I didn't know too much about the Japanese law. So, like, fufu bese, you know, separate very common, separate surnaming.、Um, it's not allowed. And I, I had heard of it, but I didn't know that was. <laughs> Actually, your thing still in 2017. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. And then、uh, the person at the city hall told me that I can't even combine last names with,、uh, with my spouse. So I was Did like, Did they say well, why?、Um, yeah, because、um, you have to have either the husband's name or wife's name, like nothing okay, in between. So just、yeah. full stop on com com combinations. Exactly. So in Japan, For those of the、um, audience members who are, might not be familiar with the Japanese law, in inevitably, because of this, 90, about 96% of the、yeah. wives end up taking the husband's name in Japan,、um, which、right. kind of makes sense. And, and I think all over the world, too, the number is probably、um, quite similar.、Um, For countries that have this common, well, and so in Can Britain, Canada, the United States, and everyone that follows sort of the British common、yeah. law tradition, that's where the British custom of patronymy. 
began, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's through the common law that you would you would be customarily through patronymy, customarily known by your spouse's, your husband's name, or you could actually do the alternative. You could actually take customarily be known by your other name, your spouse, mm-hmm. your wife's name, but it was custom. Mm-hmm. It was not, it didn't have force of law. Mm-hmm. And so this was the thing that I found so interesting is it, it took on the force of law and became mm-hmm. understood to be law when it was just a custom and it was absolutely free choice Mm-hmm. individuality framework. But over time, it became so prevalent that administrators and bureaucrats in Britain and Canada and the United States assumed that women were forced to take mm-hmm. the name of their husband. So different legal battles in Canada. We can talk about that later. I want to first delve in. So in Japan, it's not so much this custom of patronymy, but it is this actually the family registry, right? The family registry in the civil code from 1896, really, it's quite recent. If you think about it, that's only the last 120 years, I would say that really mandatory, this law has, this this civil code um, uh, obligation has been been an effect of forcing couples to have a shared surname. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how did they, what did, did they even give you, did they tell you how to challenge it or did they just yeah, send they, you away? <laughs> they did actually, because I was so determined. I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to give up. So I asked, I asked the person what, what I could do. And he was nice enough to tell me to go to the family court and, you know, deal with it there. So I did. I went to the family court thinking, you know, family courts for, you know, usually people, couples that are getting divorced, right? So I was like, man, we just got married two weeks ago and I'm already going to a family court. <laughs> um, such a weird feeling. Um, but I talked to the judge and, uh, you know, pleaded my case that I basically needed to do it, um, kind of made up a reason that it was an important identity for us. And, you know, whenever we travel, um, it's important to have the same last name, whatever, whatever that might be. But we, I totally uh, respect people who choose not to have the same last names as well. But, you know, that was, you know, my, um, my pleading uh, to the judge. And uh, the judge told me that, you know, since I married a foreign national, um, I could ask my spouse to change her name first because, you know, she's from a different country. So that's what mm-hmm. she did. And what ended up happening was I literally took her new name, which was which is Matsuo Post. So in the States, had she not already put in the process to be a Matsuo Post? Uh, she did um, in the marriage but the judge certificate. Didn't ex- but the judge didn't had, take that to be Right. She had proof. to change her passport. So oh, wow. We, okay. Yeah, we came to Japan like literally two weeks after we got married. Um, so she doesn't have the updated passport. Exactly, yeah. Under the new marital married surname. I see. Yeah. So she had to go to the embassy, U.S. embassy in, in Tokyo and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I took her passport to, to the family court and proved like, hey, she changed her name. So this is actually her last name now. Can I take her name? And then they said yes. And then the process took a few months after that. And yeah, that's how my name got changed. And, you know, if I married a Japanese, another Japanese national, I wouldn't have been able to do this because, right? yeah, which is um, not fair either. So I'm obviously all for uh, fufu bese, individual choice, exactly. In married, it, married last names, right? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, names, names are so important and it's up to the individuals and it's up to the couples to decide what they want to do, not the government, right? Not the law. Um, 
So that's my take on it, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And I, 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 I mean, I applaud, <laughs> I applaud this um, tremendous administrative hurdles that you were willing to go to and going to court. And, and obviously, uh, you know, Tina also having to go to update her passport so that there's proof beyond the marriage certificate and then changing all of her ID, I imagine, right? Um, mm-hmm. Foreign registration cards or the residency cards and all of the documents that then have to follow. And every single time you have to redo, I mean, you you redo it all once, presumably uh, to update all of all of those, those uh, administrative pieces of ID that are so important. But then after she does hers, then it's like you still have to do all of yours, but it's still an exception to the rule because you happen to be married to a foreign spouse. And this Mm -hmm. is, I guess, one of the challenges in Japan. There's so much rulemaking by exception, Mm -hmm. which is quite different, I would say, from the common law tradition and, and what we see in terms of, you know, Canadian constitutionalism, where we have a constitutional precedent comes out that affects everything below that might be of a similarly situated case. And so that Supreme Court decision really echoes down to the lower courts. Often in Japan, through the civil code system, that doesn't happen. So it is having to go to court each and every time to try each and every different possible scenario of what's coming forward as a problem or a gap in the law. Mm -hmm. And you don't get the benefit of having these these precedents that have strong sort of resonance to to allow the adjustment of the system and of law to be like a living law, a living law that supports the population, it supports the democracy, it supports the changing times, because the new interpretations are aligning with the values that really should be brought forward as, as a democratic society, honoring individuality. And we know that's the case for democracies. We, it's, you know, the premises that were, you know, this, the, the family, the family unit is no longer the baseline unit of, of a society anymore if you're a democracy. Now, you know, the base unit is an individual. And so there's this, I guess, disconnect that I see and that I've been looking at for now 25 years and and looking at Japan is, you know, Article 13 of the Japanese constitution is in some ways this affirmation around respect for individuality. But the family law system and the family registry system just flouts that with respect to surnaming. Mm -hmm. Absolutely does not honor the, the individual marrying, you know, people, citizens get the right to choose their last name. And, and, and so the, I mean, I don't know, from my perspective, it's been disappointing to see different Supreme, you know, high court decisions and, and the grand bench of the Supreme Court in Japan, not upholding that there's discrimination against women who are, like you say, 96% before it used to be 98%. When I was looking at it 20 years ago, it was 98, 98, 99% of women always changing their last name. Now it's 96. Um, so there's a little bit of a wiggle room of maybe three to 4% women who are of men who are willing to change their names um, mm-hmm. and are not so attached. And what I found fascinating, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. One of the things that, you know, Japan struggles with is declining birth rate. Mm-hmm. And you have fewer children and you have more single children, single child mm-hmm. syndrome, right? Single children in a family unit are supposed to carry on their family line and their family last name. So this tradition of carrying on your family line and your family last name, when you have a whole bunch of families that only have one child, when those one single children, only children, marry another only child, there's a real challenge on which which family heritage, which household heritage gets to continue if you can only have one Mm -hmm. be accommodated, right? Now, I realize the way that you've blended and your choice of blending means that you get to keep both heritage, right? Like the heritage mm-hmm. from both your spouse and you. 
to be passed on to children. And I think that's a really interesting creative creative option. Um, but I think it's hard when we, in Japan, when the, the, the there's two trends that are kind of at cross purposes, like that we want to have, you know, descendancy continuing for all these different family lines, but now you have too many only children. And if they marry, the law is now undermining that tradition mm-hmm. of carrying on the heritage and passing it on to children for both families. So have you had a chance to talk with other women or men who are engaged in this issue? And what is, where do you find that your experiences fit within that context? Yeah. So in, in terms of, you know, picking your last name after marriage, um, I, a lot of people are starting to talk more about this and you see these articles and op-eds in newspapers, which is great. And I, I do think it's, uh, it's one of the, it's one of the factors of declining population. I, I know that there are many couples who are refusing to get married because of this, right? right? Yes. Um, and I completely agree, um, understand it because, um, like I said earlier, identity is such an important part of uh, an individual for everyone, right? And because of th- this law prohibits um, one of the spouses in a couple to kind of let go of it or give up, um, you know, a lot of people are just like saying, forget, then I don't want to get married. Um, right. Maybe I might not get, and they, they end up breaking up as well, right? So mm. when they actually break up, hmm. okay, they, you know, they're not, no longer a couple. So maybe they were were planning to have kids, but, you know, they chose not to or something like that. So I'm not saying this is the only root cause, obviously, but I think it's um, it's one of the one of the things that can help with the declining population in Japan, too. Well, And I think in some ways it it can be um, a trigger conversation because maybe maybe there are gender role expectations that they've neither of them really spoken about. And then when it comes to, we're getting married, you're taking my name. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe the other spouse, predominantly the woman is going, yeah, uh, really? What? I hadn't <laughs> known that was your expectation. And then there, there's a whole bunch of other conversations that maybe rightly need to have <laughs> right. be, be had about what is your understanding of what a, what a life partnership means. And, and just because I, you know, um, I'm a girl or you're a boy, like, look, can we move beyond? And then I think those are important conversations to have. But it is a shame that the freedom to self-define isn't left to that couple to deal with and then, you know, talk to each other about their wishes. Because the government, I think, really has no business, you know, determining those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and moreover, it's actually, again, another facet where the, the family registry undermines the household security and household sustainability. And, and I'll just speak from a personal example. Even if we take, you know, c- common law status, common law relationships have have no legal standing. So if you are choosing to stay outside of that legal protected privileged, and that's for both obviously same-sex couples as well as heterosexual couples, all of those couples are left outside of legal recognition and they're not recognized as family members. And this is a huge risk when you have things like, and so the first time I was really confronted with this was, you know, back in Sendai in 2011, I was in a same-sex relationship. I had a baby, we had a child and triple disaster hits and we are not a family. We are not recognized as a family. So if ever I had died, I having been, you know, the birth parent, um, there is no legal tie back to the individual who, of course, was the other parent 
parent in my in that in in our daughter's life. So it just puts you into this legal limbo. And in a disaster prone country like Japan, you cannot get access to any information on a family member mm -hmm. unless you're legally recognized as family. So during、mm -hmm. the global pandemic, now we're dealing with a global pandemic. Common law couples do not have the right to call up a hospital and get information about their spouse.、Mm -hmm. They're not legally recognized. They're、mm -hmm. outside of the boundaries, and so it creates so much risk.、Mm -hmm. So much risk, so much potential trauma, and exacerbates what is already a horrible situation in a way that the law could be an ally and and could be providing empowerment to couples and empowerment stability、mm -hmm. to families, which is what the role of the law is supposed to be. Right, law is、mm -hmm. supposed to be emancipatory、mm -hmm. in a democracy. It's not supposed to punish you. It's supposed to help really be a support to families and a support to citizens. So I find that so disappointing. That the ideology, or maybe it's the conservative ideology, that we need to go back to the traditional men are the head of the household, and their heritage matters, and their culture matters, and their family line matters, and so everything just needs to pass through predominantly their line, and women take, you know, are brought into Oyomisan,、mm -hmm. right? You're you brought into the family, and that traditional gender role is so protected by the parliament right now that they won't let law reform through to let the red the family registry be evolving and innovating to meet the needs of you. And so many other common law spouses, and so many、mm -hmm. other same-sex relationships. Right? There's just no room for innovation、mm -hmm. because the the old school ideology on 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 traditional patriarchal gender is、yeah. still being privileged by parliamentarians. When this is a democracy, and we're supposed to have equality,、mm -hmm. um, but somehow those values, those democratic equality values, aren't aren't actually what is being followed. And I, and I wonder how we can. I mean, so examples like yours. That have been successful, and then making that scene, and I just, I just want to tell you to run for office, frankly, <laughs> because we need, we need a handover of power to young, well-educated, global-minded, gender-equal men and women leaders to be in politics in the Japanese Diet, and in the 25 years I've been looking at the Japanese politics, that's not emerging yet in sufficient numbers to get. Change in the actual laws that get adopted by、mm -hmm. Parliament. Yeah, don't want to put you on the spot there, but I would <laughs> love you to run for office. Can I like launch your campaign? <laughs>、uh, I'll vote for you. I can't vote in Japan, but I, you know, I, I would vote for you. <laughs> I want to do whatever I can to bring promote equality, but I have no plans to run for office at this moment. But ask me in my five ten years. I'm just gonna plant a seed. I'm just gonna plant a seed, right? Because we need exactly this kind of like visionary leadership, right, to bring these different models of masculinity and different values of what need to be brought into the law. So, can you tell me a bit about your book and what your book captures in this journey? Because you、yeah. had a, I think we've skipped to the meaty part of what the output was of what your 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 you know your your innovation in the Japanese、mm -hmm. Family Registry went straight to the heart of that. But maybe to give back some background context of what what led up to that, to、yeah. that whole awareness and mindset shift, I would suggest. Yeah. So my book, which was published、um, about two months ago on December first, twenty twenty, is called <laughs> I Too Kurne, and it's about. Um, it's a book about gender and feminism in Japan and actually all over the world. And I decided to write this in English because I felt、um, English was a little bit easier to write to begin with. And I I thought this、um, a gender equality topic topic of gender equality is relevant all over the world. So I decided to write in English first.、Um, but I am translating and publishing、Yay. in、awesome. Japanese. Can we send one、well. to Mori? Can we please send one to Mori? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and to the prime minister. Yeah, and to the、yeah. prime minister. But yeah, I'll send like 
100, 100 copies to the <laughs>、yeah. cabinet or, and money、awesome. for sure. Hi. But anyway, so kind of going back to the, my name changing process a little bit. So I did change my name. So that was hard enough to go through you know,、uh, a bunch of hoops.、Um, and after that, obviously, I had to change my name in every form of ID passport, credit cards, email address,、uh, Hokkien show,、um, you name it. And many, many women in the past have gone through this, right? But as a man, <laughs> I had no idea how time consuming that was and how, how much energy that sucks out of you, right? Because、yeah. I had to like make adjustments like, oh man, I need to do this. I need to go here to change my driver's license.、Um, and so, I just, <laughs> and that's when it really hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know because. I was born a male and I had this male privilege, and I, ha- I have no idea the name change, changing your identity, changing your name.、Um, sorry, changing your name is, takes this much effort, time, and energy. And it's,、um, I just felt that it's wrong to expect、uh, one gender to go through this、um, only because they identify themselves as women. And, you know, that was kind of like my aha moment. And, That kind of got me thinking, like, what else is there?、Um, what other inequalities are there in,、mm. in this society and around the world? And that's what really got me curious to, to research more about it and then think about inequalities and gender bias in our everyday life.、Um, and what I found out ever since that moment、um, have you heard of uh, the uh, Bader Meinhof phenomenon? Like, when you buy like, a car, you see the same car. Everywhere, like everywhere. Okay.、So、it's kind of、yeah, like the、okay. phenomenon. Like, oh my gosh, it's I on the radar now. Exactly. It's, it's in my head. And I see everything as like gender、yeah. through the, the lens of gender. And I saw so much. And, and I wonder how much of it I didn't see before because、mm. of the male privilege that I mentioned. And, you know, I, people, people sometimes ask me, like, okay, well, you changed your name. That's cool. And so what? Like, why, why do we have to care? Like, well, we need to care because it's not just about me changing my name. It's, it's about、um, acknowledging that male privilege exists. exists. Privileges exist. <laughs> and if you don't know, it, it, it exists because、um, you never paid attention to it. And we need to.、Um, otherwise, this, this whole conversation of gender equality wouldn't even start.、Um, so that's why I wanted to write this book for fellow men.、Um, and that's、yeah. so key, right? Because I feel like, and, and this is where maybe I am、I'm、slightly coming from a different angle from even within you know, the research field that I've been in for, for political science or, or you know, feminist political philosophy or, or those kinds of areas. I've found that I did a lot of thinking about democracy and democratic theory, as well as all of the different you know, feminism or critical race studies or post colonialism or those like, other systems of you know, critique, that it wasn't just always gender, it was you know, in an intersectional understanding of gender and,、right. and, and that training. But I found, I even find that there's a difference where sometimes within social movements and feminist movements and you know, critical race movements, sometimes we forget that we need to keep putting those responsibilities for solving these issues back on the public agenda as not just, you know, Affected communities. And so affected, affected communities know this. Affected communities know if you're, if you're amongst the marginalized organizations or, or, or social groups advocating, you know that it's not our burden. Like it's not women's responsibility to solve women's inequality. We didn't create this problem, right? So why is it our job to clean it up? 
But at the same time, because of privilege, because of male privilege in the case of maybe gender inequality, it is largely women's organizations left to clean it all up for democracy when it's fundamentally the homework of a democratic society and of the government and of political parties and of every individual in that community to be shouldering the responsibility. So we to- we definitely need men mm-hmm. as our core leadership co-allies and mm-hmm. co-leaders doing the work of bringing on great, greater democratization of gender relations, right? It can't mm-hmm. be done and accomplished just by women's movements or feminist movements. It really has to be accomplished as a democratic project, yeah. like a democratic project. Yeah. And, and this is where men's roles are pivotal. And I certainly see and, and work with a lot of different men in different countries because the democratic project is so huge, right? And most of it is actually looking at dismantling the inequality in the law and in the policy. So it's in our legal system, really, like the whole yeah. policy and legal ecosystem through our state and our government machinery is churning out and reproducing the discriminatory laws and policies. every year. They just keep churning it out and reproducing it. You sort of go, why hasn't gender inequality ended? Because the government is subsidizing it through all of these new laws and policies still. And our corporations are still subsidizing that, whether they realize it or not, in the way that they use corporate policy, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of blind spots. The people just don't realize those blind spots in the design of the laws and the policies. But having men engage in these conversations and realize it's not an individual, it's not just an individual, oh, well, you wanted to change your name and then it's done. It's this broader sort of like system-wide critique that you're opening up through your example. Yeah, yeah, it's totally And, and inviting men, inviting yeah. men into your worldview. And we often talk about, you know, the lens, like a gender equality lens, like glasses, you put that on. And until you put that on, you're kind of didn't realize there was, and then you see it everywhere. It's like, wow, now I see it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and same with racism and white privilege, right? Or yeah. if it's, you know, whatever ethno-national cultural domination there is within each country that's in every country but Mm -hmm. until you realize that and put on those glasses you don't see it necessarily Mm -hmm. 100 percent. yeah how 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 does this journey unfold for you in the book yeah so since i saw this side of um like feminism let me back up a little bit so if you ask me um do you believe in gender equality like seven years ago i would have said yeah yeah, I like that idea. I, I, I think gender, you know, all gender should be equal. And I think it is now, isn't it? And um, <laughs> we've, but we've checked not, that box, right? We've checked yeah, that box. exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I'd like to consider myself like, you know, someone who believed in equal things, you know, uh, with everything. Um, but if someone asked me, are you a feminist? Are you, you know, are you doing anything about feminism? And I probably would have said, no, no, that that word sounds a little bit too strong. You know, let, let's just stop at gender equality. But the truth is, feminism is about gender equality, promoting gender equality. And as simple as that. And I didn't know because I just um, chose, I guess, chose not to pay too much attention to that. Um, but this gave me, this experience gave me this opportunity to learn more because I had the response, I feel like I had the responsibility to, to share with this, uh, this with people um, who didn't know, just like me before, right? And uh, to your point, I think feminism is not just a women's issue, uh, definitely not. It's a, it's a humanity issue. Um, and if half the population is not actively involved in 
trying to dismantle the patriarchy, um, I don't think we'll ever achieve the equality that we need to have. Um, the, the trend and, would suggest you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the trend in all countries everywhere, until we really have men championing this through their roles in yeah. pub, you know, political leadership and through all levels, until that happens, I think you don't see the countries that are the best performing yeah. They really do have, you know, a sense of um, men and women working together yeah. in solidarity. Yeah. And here's the thing, you know, many men might come to me like, hey, hey, dude, like, what are you trying to do? Like, it's working. This system is working out for men. What are you what are you doing? Like, right. why are you trying to, like, you know, make, you make the playing, fee- playing field equal? And I say, like, uh, no, it's actually going to benefit men, too. And I I got to experience it through this journey, like while I was writing my manuscript as well. So what I mean by that is, you know, I believe patriarchy is the root cause of these rigid gender norms. Like men are supposed to be this way, you know, like a gender roles. Um, strong. Strong. Yeah. Stoic. Um, powerful. Primary um, soul, breadwinner, uh, powerful, no, controlling. Yeah. Dominant. And women are the opposite. And, right. you know, we're conditioned to see that side of the spectrum as a weakness, right? Mm-hmm. So we just reject femininity um, and then kind of like are stuck in the man box per se. And that can be very toxic. And that's what I call toxic masculinity as well. Like if you're just focused on being the best, like dominating you know, controlling, like not showing your emotions and all that stuff. Um, you know, if you look at the statistics of su- suicidal rates, more men, yeah. way more men are committing suicides, even though um, I think more women are uh, diagnosed with depression more easily, but they seek yeah. help. They seek support early on. So right. men, men don't, and they end up committing um, suicide and killing themselves. And that's a, that's a big issue. And that's only one of them, right? And what if we just take out all the, you know, those gender expectations that don't serve um, men, women, anyone in, in between, like how free would that be? So right. feminism really frees everyone, like people, uh, men included. So that's what I experienced. Like I went through this uh, experience of vulnerability, you know, really being true to myself and like showing who I am, like publishing my book was uh, scary enough. Like I was so scared to actually like send in my manuscript. And, really? you know, I, I yeah, yeah. I, oh. I went back and forth so many times in my head. Like, are you sh- sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Because you're really exposing yourself. You're revealing uh, a lot about yeah, your, uh, your journey and, and yeah. I guess your relationship with your spouse. And so that's exactly. also very intimate. And, yeah. and, and we often think that's you know exclusively private but i think and maybe you could share a little bit about that i mean you obviously the subtitle is, is really you know lessons from my journey into vulnerability authenticity and feminism which you mm-hmm. know still lovely subtitle how did you work through when you were maybe lacking courage or wanting to understand where you were miss like what your previous understandings of feminism were and then how did you move and evolve to come to this view of feminism was it through dialogue with your with your spouse was it through conversations with other people you document some of it in the book but maybe how did you because it's a, it's a big process of thought partnering i mean thought partnering is obviously an important practice around mm-hmm. learning and growing and vulnerability and uh, mm-hmm. being open to learn from somebody else right and mm-hmm. so how did you deal with those lack of courage moments when you were like, should I do this or should I not? Or am I on the right track? Is my understanding of feminism accurate and, and or, or whatever it is that you were, you were feeling worried about? 
Yeah, I think the biggest piece is I was really focused on doing human instead of being a human. Um, so what I mean by that is I wanted to, um, I, you know, just as a person, and I still feel this way too, like I, you know, everyone, people want to be successful in life. And for me, the success looked like, uh, you know, getting acknowledged by the society, you know, um, it's very measurable, like getting these mm -hmm. things, you know, winning these things, right? And I knew I had to make a lot of effort um, to get there, um, to collect those things. And oftentimes, you know, when I became emotional, that took a lot of energy out of me, or um, so I couldn't like focus on um, what I thought I had to do, like doing those tasks or you know, things. So I really associated my, uh, my hmm. emotions with pain or like something that's not productive. Um, gets in the way of performance. Gets in, exactly. Gets in the way of performance. Yeah. And I used to think that. Way. So hmm. even dating, um, you know, I wanted to, there was a period of my life where I just wanted to perform as a man, meaning like getting many dates. And, you know, I kind of looked at dating as like a number game. Um, mm. you know, and there was a period of my life and kind of transactional, immediately very transactional. And, uh, you know, at one point and, and I was having fun and all, but at one point I, I felt like I couldn't even connect with my deep self, deepest self. Cause I was just folk, so focused on doing my life. Like and I'm maybe supposed the, to be doing the projection, this. like yeah. who you project yourself to be, but isn't actually who you feel you are. Yeah. But you just keep projecting success exactly. and performance. And exactly. And, uh, you know, I dug really deep, like, where does this come from? And I really think it came from the my view of the, the gender norm, like the traditional gender norm that I thought I had to perform um, only because I was born a male. And but we forget that men get trapped in the man box. Too, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I do want to give a lot of credit to Tina, my wife, um, but she did a really, um, she did a phenomenal job kind of dismantling, like um, untangling, you know, like the, the box that I was in, um, <laughs> not by just attacking me or anything uh, with her feminist views, um, but like very gently, slowly um, and asking me questions about uh, why I used to do the things that I did, like those traditional uh, male behaviors and whatnot. Um, so yeah. she definitely dismantled my traditional view of uh, feminists. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yes. I, I used to think like feminists are just angry women <laughs> that are just like um, attacking men and all that We're stuff. We're not so and scary. Like, yeah. <laughs> and no, like they're very kind feminists, you know, um, <laughs> as well. And she was definitely one of them. And, and she also is a teacher <laughs> and she teaches feminism um, and gender and language to her students as well so it's her expertise and yes. you know it just happened to be you know uh, we just started to have those conversations in our dates and and that's when mm -hmm. I really started my journey into feminism mm -hmm. and I started to open up more and I started to share my struggles with her and other people in my life and and I saw and I once I started to do that I um, I started to connect with those people more deeply. And I I just started to connect with myself more deeply. And I found a lot more meaning in that right. way of living than just to focus on the measurables or uh, measurables are, are important, but, you know, just doing things like to, to succeed my goals per se. But right. yeah, being a human is feeling like being here right now, like being and present I, and connection, right? Yeah. I imagine that because <clears throat> you were connecting at a different level of your being 
rather than the doing side, they could actually see you for who you were, Mm -hmm. right? And then you get a sense of they accept you for who you are. They like you for who you are. And you're having, you know, a meaningful connection around who you are, which is maybe... I wonder if you, it's hard to find a sense of like security and confidence that, oh, they actually genuinely like and accept me if they've never seen you because all they've seen is all the doing and the performance. Yeah. Right. They never get a glimpse of who you are. So you don't get that sense that they actually do, you know, accept you unconditionally for who Mm -hmm. you have shown yourself to be, which gives you a greater sense of, you can just breathe and relax and say, wow, like our friendship goes beyond, mm-hmm. you know, I can run a marathon and, and they think that I'm cool for that yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever it is, right? Like it's not just about the performance. It's about really just like you say, the the being, not the doing. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's... Yeah, that's, exact, <laughs> that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm, I'm still in the work, like by no means, just because I... We all are always know. in the work. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is like never ending. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think as uh, this as a practice. So if you stop trying, you're going to go back to who you were right. before. So it's you're, you got to be constantly in the practice of being. So that's, that's something I'm practicing right now. Yeah. Wonderful. And I mean, I guess... We've spoken a lot of different topics today. You obviously have taken on a, a new exciting role as a new father. Uh, yes. Would you be willing to share just a little bit about how, I mean, I personally think that when I, my feminism really became stronger actually and bounced back when I became a parent, when I became a mother, because I realized I have a daughter and a son and I'll be damned if any society is going to prevent them for either of the gender boxes from finding really substantive well-being. And so it's kind of like the mother lion comes out and says, oh, no, you're not (laughs) going to put my children in a box Mm -hmm. due to the fact that they were born into this body that happens to have a vagina or penis, because that is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, right? That we should we should put these boundaries on these bodies when the spirit of our of the individuality of our children need to be just supported and flourished and, and honored right and so for me that was like a really i guess important point in my journey of saying okay what do i as a as a you know diversity loving feminist because there's a lot of different versions of feminism out there which is another problem in our myth or misunderstanding is not everybody thinks the same version of feminism there's like you know, I've studied at least 10 different versions of feminisms over the last 20 years. And so which one you're self-identifying as is, is a journey, right, of how you find your fit. But so as a diversity positive feminist, um, mother and parent and life partner, how do I practice that? And as, as somebody who believes strongly in dem- democracy, obviously, mm-hmm. how do you practice that in our families? So how, how does that enrich or change or has it altered your view of how you're worried about your role or how you think about your role or the, the beauty of the challenge that you have to be like a mother, a, a father lion protecting, right? Yeah. Because the world out there puts our children in boxes constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. It made me more of a strong advocate of feminism and gender equality now that I'm a father. Um, so to begin with, um, when my wife Tina got pregnant, we actually didn't want to find out the sex of the baby. So we chose not to, you know, find out because the, the gender reveal party it <laughs> should be should be sex reveal, actually. It's not gender. Because yeah. um, the reason, like we thought the reason people do it is because they want to kind of 
put their child in the in the box uh, start acquiring all yeah, the, the blue yeah, or pink exactly and we're like no we don't we don't need to do that that's not something we believe because you know naturally the society is going to try to do that as soon as yeah. the baby's born so we don't need to do that you know way before they're born and everybody has so to buy gender neutral gender flexible <laughs> gender inclusive gifts right like just yeah. pick something that is gender inclusive and yeah. you know follow the rainbow yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly and yeah, until we went through this whole process of um, childbearing and all that stuff, but we just didn't realize how much, um, yeah, how much of a, a box ticking society is trying to do with gender of kids. Um, yeah. It starts even before they're born. So um, we're constantly trying to um, kind of fight or like talk to each other and like, okay, what, how do we want to raise our child? We have a son. So um, yeah, that's a constant com in conversation. And, right. you know, I think, um, I think I might have mentioned in the previous talk before, I, I think uh, society has done a, a good, you know, better job um, raising daughters to be more independent, you know, uh, strong, you know, that's kind of like the theme of the last decade or two. Um, you know, strong girls, uh, which is, which is good. Maybe right? not so much in Japan. Yet. Maybe not so much in but Japan. In, just, yeah. Certainly in North America and Europe and other places, I would say yes. In Japan, I think it's in what I experienced for the public education system and the attitudes that my daughter encompasses. Yeah. It's really not that prevalent in her classroom. And, yeah. and, and she finds that troubling. Um, right. So, yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do still on that piece, too, for Japan. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, the gender expression piece, um, you know, yes. just embracing differences, like, you know, wider spectrum of gender mm. expressions, uh, regardless of their uh, gender ident identification. For boys, it's so much so. It's still in North America, too, I think. You know, the boys are... Narrow. Yeah, very narrow. Um, and now yes. that we have a son, we want our son to really explore um, just being a human. Because uh, masculinity and femininity, those are just human qualities. Um, exactly. It doesn't matter how you identify It's available to as. both. Exactly. It's available to yeah. everybody. Yeah. So that's something that we're committed to, just really celebrating um, whatever the gender expression that um, our son wants to have and um and really advocating for that um and you know child uh child care is so important because they're going to be the the future of our society right yes. so we um we definitely prioritize uh education how we raise our son uh, even though he's only born uh almost five months old so um, cute. <laughs> yeah thank you yeah so yeah, that's a huge, huge focus. Um, Great. Well, yeah. I think that is the the democratic homework for for all of us, right? In societies yeah. to support all these little beautiful children. Mm -hmm. And with that, I would like to thank you for this very enriching and inspiring uh, thought partnering out loud experiment that we've been able to do together today. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I do want to encourage everyone listening to please go out and get your copy of I Took Her Name. It is a really amazing read. Beautiful, beautiful writing. Uh, such an amazing story about what I described as I think one man's love of a life partner, of country, and of freedom that I think is so inspiring for both women and for men, men and for women. And I hope everyone will, will read it and uh, learn from it and seek you out to be a speaker for other opportunities because you're a great person to inspire the world for change, particularly in Japan, but also uh, around the world. So thank you today for, for this uh, Shu Matsuo Post for joining us today. I want thank you, to, thank you. thank you, my pleasure. Mm. 
And our next guest for next week will be Casey Wall, the CEO of EQIQ and a Japan-based Wall and Case. And uh, Casey will be sharing about uh, how to build technology for good, for the collective good, for the greater good. And also he will speak about his passion for the concept of intrinsic motivation and how that guides hiring and people happiness at work. And I'm sure we'll dive in a little bit also about his personal uh, commitments and passion for supporting women's leadership in the startup uh, entrepreneurial spaces in Japan, where he's been active. So please tune in for that. Um, once again, I'm happy to let people know that uh, Enjoy has workshops and consulting offerings that you can find online trainings on diversity, equity, and innovation. Uh, so check us out at www.en-joi.com. Shu Matsuo-Post and I, of course, have an upcoming collaboration that we are building for Enjoy. Uh, it will be a, uh, a safe space discussion for Japanese national men on gender, on diversity, on equity, and on the value of feminism for men's emancipation and for men's freedom. So that will be launching probably later in the year. Uh, and we look forward, I look so forward to having that and that collaboration with you. And I'm grateful to have you join our team and work with us on that. Do you have announcements you want to share, Shu? So my thank you for... Uh, promoting my book um, as well, Jackie, and thank you so much for having me today. I So my book is available uh, in three versions right now. So Kindle, paperback, and hard copy. Everything is available on Amazon right now. And I'm excited to announce that the audiobook version is going to come out on March 8th, the International Women's Day. Awesome. So yeah, narrated by the author myself. So stay <laughs> <What>? tuned. <Yeah. laughs> no pressure on that side. <laughs> Wonderful. Great. Well, then I hope everyone can check out those, uh, those offerings. And thank you very much for joining us today, everyone. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.